Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum from center left to center right. I'm Sonny Bunch, culture editor at the Bulwark, uh, and I'm sitting in for Mona Charon this week. Joining me are regulars Bill Galston of the Brookings Institution and the Wall Street Journal, Linda Chavez of the Niskanen Center, uh, and Damon Linker, who writes Eyes on the Right on Substack. Our special guest is Megan McArdle, columnist with The Washington Post, and you can normally find me hosting the podcast The Bulwark Goes to Hollywood and Across the Movie Aisle. First up, let's try to unpack everything going on with the DOJ and Donald Trump. If the Department of Justice's filing is to be believed, they not only had good reason to search Mar-a-Lago, they also found what they were looking for. And if Donald Trump's Truth Social account is to be believed, well, they not only had good reason to search Mar-a-Lago, they also seem to have found what they were looking for. I have been of the opinion for a while now that the my boxes theory of the case, as opposed to the he's selling secrets to the Russians theory of the case, is the best one. Basically, Trump thought they were his boxes and like a toddler who doesn't want to return his toy to the box, just petulantly refused to do so. Linda, am I weirdly giving him too much credit by suggesting he's just being a stubborn oaf, as is his want? And should it really change the DOJ's calculus at all? Well, exactly. I guess I think that latter point is the uh, relevant one. Look, I've been convinced from the beginning that Kim Jong-un's love letters were in 45's desk, and apparently they found three items in his two desks. I think he goes in there every morning, he reads the love letter, he reminds himself that he was once the most powerful man in the world, and that makes him feel better. What the other stuff was doing there, I don't know. I do think that everything that we have read suggests that Trump just was chaotic, that he had no rhyme or reason for some of his actions. I mean, there are descriptions of him taking material to the White House residence. He would throw things in a box and it didn't much matter what it was. I mean, it might be the little White House briefing that comes out every morning with newspaper clips, plus whatever secret information happened to be in his daily presidential briefing, plus who knows what else. Um, and, and he'd carry it back and forth. Sometimes he took it with him on foreign trips, which is extraordinarily dangerous if, in fact, he was taking SCI and other classified material at the highest level. At the end of the day, As with all things in Washington, it is not going to be the crime itself, but the cover-up that's going to get him. It was that affirmation to the Justice Department that was signed by Donald Trump's lawyers that said, we have returned all material. We have done a diligent search of Mar-a-Lago, and you now have everything. This was a letter written to the National Archives and to the uh, Justice Department, and I think that is what's going to do him in. Because clearly, when they found material in his office, boxes of material plus these random pieces of compartmentalized intelligence uh, that were in his various desk drawers, the fact that they lied about it, either he lied to his lawyers or his lawyers lied to the Department of Justice. And that's going to be, I think, what does him in. Can we just drill down on the potential of the lawyers lying to the DOJ? Because I think that's really interesting. And I saw somebody, you know, talking somewhere about how the worst possible thing that could happen to Donald Trump is have his lawyers on the stand basically testifying against him. And we've already seen that. I mean, they've done that. Uh, We've already had his White House lawyers testify against him at the January 6th hearing. Presumably, they have done the same thing before the grand jury. So we've seen that already, and I think that is deeply damaging. But of course, now we're talking about not White House officials who, you know, are Republican, but they're more establishment Republican. We're talking about, you know, a former OAN on-air personality who's one of his lawyers. And whether they will go down with him or not, I don't know how much damage they can do. I think that's, I don't know, it's up in the air. Megan, what do you make of all this? Where do you think things stand uh, just uh, on a political level? Oh, on a political level? Um, I think that it is. Look, I say this as a, a mainstream media sellout uh, and a never Trumper, but like it is time for the party to do what it needed to do six years ago and band together and get rid of this guy. It is never going to end. The whole Republican strategy of like, we don't want to cross his voters. They love him. We'll just keep quiet and we're going to hope that eventually he goes away. He's not going away. He is not going to stop having scandals. 
It's going to be endless. He is a sucking black hole of disaster that is going to pull the party in everything uh, if they don't just finally decide it's time. The best time to do this was six years ago. The second best time is now. We have to stop making excuses for it. We have to stop pretending it's not happening because he is already damaging the party before this happened. He has been intervening in elections and because his single issue litmus test is how much do you love Donald Trump? How slavishly are you willing to proclaim his lies about the 2020 election, which is selecting for weak and inexperienced candidates who are not doing well and alienating moderate voters. He has already been harming the party. The whole idea of the Trump magic that can help the party kind of win elections, it's not working. The party needs to get rid of him and unite behind a different candidate. I have opinions about who that should be, but you know, that's the party's decision. As long as they make excuses for him, as long as they keep standing silent while this happens, he's going to continue wrecking the party from inside. The party is kind of hostage to the voters, right? This is the JVL theory of the the Republican Party at this point is that we're getting more Donald Trump because that's what Republican voters want. I don't think that that's quite right. So I think he has a devoted fan base, obviously, right? But then there's a lot of other voters who would be just as happy with a DeSantis or a Glenn Youngkin or indeed anyone else who is a Republican. They just don't want it to be a liberal. The problem is he's helping elect Democrats. And so for those voters, it is better to get rid of him. Now, does this risk a party split? Absolutely. But it's coming at some point because he's optimizing the party, not for winning elections, but for aggrandizing the ego of one Donald J. Trump. And by the time he finally exits, after the Republicans have waited another five or 10 years for him to basically be sidelined by old age, is that party going to be capable of winning elections at all? Is it going to be capable of holding together in the absence of the centrifugal force of Donald Trump? I'm skeptical. So even though I think there are high costs to doing this, and it does mean alienating some of his voters, at least temporarily, I think it's better to risk the party split now and then start rebuilding immediately than it is to wait and see what happens five or 10 years down the road after you have further damaged the Republican brand, further cemented his hold further elevated people whose main criteria is not that they're good for the party, good at winning elections or good at doing anything in office, but just that they flatter Donald Trump. I don't actually think that this is a kind of undemocratic move because remember, he never got a majority of voters in the primary in 2016. It isn't that they all were just waiting for Donald Trump to come rescue him from the establishment. It is that he has a faction in the party, but not the only faction in the party. And the other factions have basically let him win by default by refusing to unite behind someone else. Yeah, no, I think that's that's about right. Uh, Damon, I, does any of what went down this week alter your thinking or change your calculus about the relative dangers of prosecuting versus not prosecuting Trump? No, not really. I'm the resident, especially with Mona not here, the resident uh, don't prosecute Trump faction here on the podcast. You know, in fact, I would say to the extent that the Mar-a-Lago chapter in Trump's legal saga ends up fastening on to obstruction of justice as a primary charge, I'm even more convinced that it's not going to happen. I do not believe that the attorney general who was appointed by a president of the other party is going to indict the former Republican president over obstructing justice with no other precipitating crime, because he will always be able to say, of course, I was obstructing justice. I didn't do anything wrong. I was trying to defend myself against this horrible overreach of the federal authorities, just as all the rest of you good law-abiding Americans would do. That would be his defense. And I actually think it would be pretty successful in court. So I, if there is an underlying egregious violation of federal law that they are absolutely certain they can convict him on. They aren't going to, I mean, in that case, they could add obstruction to that list, but they're not going to just go at him for obstruction of justice over these documents if there is no underlying, again, bullseye crime. It can't just be, yeah, I I think this is relatively strong. We can go after him. 
I mean, you know, one dimension of this issue that I hadn't talked about much up until now that some people were debating this week that I think is significant is think about what's going to happen when it comes to like jury selection for such a trial. Like, are you going to like ask people who they voted for? And then if you voted for Trump, that's 47% of the country. Are they automatically excluded? They can't really be. Certainly Trump's lawyers would never go for that. And then can we believe that in the tank Trump voters are persuadable? That in and of itself is kind of a mini version of the general problem writ large, which I keep hammering on about, which is that this is a political problem. And to the extent that we try to solve it in the legal arena, we end up tripped up all over the place. So no, I haven't really been convinced of anything beyond what I've thought since roughly June 2015, if not back to when I was a teenager growing up in the New York area, which is, this is a bad guy. <laughs> so that's about where I remain, I guess. But Damon, aren't you excited for a months-long debate on Twitter about the pros and cons of jury nullification? Can't you imagine the discourse and how much fun that would be? Oh, yes. The, the, <laughs> the, the mean tweets in every direction would be extremely entertaining. Absolutely. <laughs> No, I mean, I think it is interesting. You would definitely have to come up with some sort of system to exclude actual voters. You just have to get like the least involved people on the planet to be on the jury. And that's always what you want from a jury. Well, you know, strangely, that is exactly right. Because when we talk about, you know, what about the moderate voters? Well, the moderate voters tend to be the least informed among us. And I guess, is that really a jury of our peers? Um, don't know about that. Certainly, it isn't my peers sitting on Twitter all day, but that makes me <laughs> weird. Yes. Well, we, we don't want a bunch of Twitter people on any jury, really. I, as somebody who was on Twitter all day long, please exclude us from the juries. Uh, Bill, how do you think this is going to all play out? I mean, this does, it does seem to be ramping up, you know, Andy McCarthy and NRO is talking about how there could easily be an indictment. I don't think he said definitely. It seems like folks are kind of coming around to the idea that he is going to be charged with something. Do you see that happening? I have, as the listeners, at least the faithful ones know, come around to the view that he's likely to be charged. And furthermore, that he probably should be. Damon and I had an exchange on that a week or two ago. But I do think ultimately the problem is a political problem. And I'd like to take Megan up on her proposition. It is the case that Trump was a plurality and not a majority winner. But on the other hand, there's no one close to him in the esteem of the Republican electorate, as it's now constituted. Donald Trump got to be the party's nominee, and then the president of the United States, and then the party's nominee again, because he understood better than anyone else what the new Republican Party was really about, what the Tea Party people really cared about, as opposed to what the Paul Ryans of this world thought they cared about. And they are now glued to him. I don't see that bond breaking down. I don't even see it weakening very much in the past 18 months. So yes, it is true that he won the nomination in 2016 because the rest of the party couldn't unite. On the other hand, I'd pose the following question. Who could beat him in a one-on-one -on -one competition for the Republican nomination? And who would be willing to take the plunge at the cost of permanently alienating Donald Trump's most fervent supporters? I don't think, frankly, I may be proved wrong about this, that Ron DeSantis would be willing to take the plunge when he knows that if he waits, the nomination will fall into his hand like an overripe apple falling from the tree. So I think that as long as the Republican base wants what it wants, Donald Trump is the Republican Party's ineluctable fate. And uh, the only way to prevent him from reoccupying the Oval Office is to defeat him in the general election. Megan, do you want to respond to that? Because I, I'm kind of of the same opinion. I mean, I... I... I think Ron DeSantis, faced with the prospect of having to get into a knockdown drag out fight with Donald Trump, just says, and eh, maybe I'll wait till next time. 
Well, so here is the counterpoint to that. I think that's a real risk, right? I am. I think that's correct, right? I think the Republican Party might be doomed, but let's think this through, right? Why do people run for president when they do, even when the odds don't necessarily look great, like Mitt Romney in 2012? Well, because you actually have a pretty narrow window of kind of notoriety. Ron DeSantis, if he waits, is there any guarantee that if Trump loses in 2024, he's not going to run again in 2028? Yeah. Waiting may just mean that you have to wait another 10 or 12 years, at which point Ron DeSantis is not going to be looking like the fresh hot candidate for doing this. He is in a kind of a strike while the iron is hot moment. He has had a lot of success fighting woke capital at Disney, going against woke schools, and that won't necessarily be true in four years. He won't necessarily have the best argument to take to the voting public, even if Trump decides not to run, which he might well again. I think the real problem the party has is not the Ron DeSantis's or the Glenn Youngins or whoever your preferred person to take on Donald Trump is. I think the issue is that it has to be one person and it can't just be them. What they need to do is come on the scene with a lot of early endorsements and a lot of promises that other people are going to campaign for them. And that is what's not happening. What's not happening is that the rest of the party would just like someone to take Donald Trump out, but they all hate him. <laughs> they all understand the damage he's doing to the country and to the party, with the exception of like some of the super MAGA types. They do get it, actually. They know he didn't win the 2020 election. They know that it's corrosive. They know it alienates moderate voters. But they want someone else to do it. They're hoping for a deus ex machina. Well, guys, when is it going to happen? And how much more damage is he going to do first? And so I think, actually, there is a rational case for the party in a way that it has not been able to do for six years, just looking at this and saying, my God, this is going to go on and on. He's going to get indicted and convicted, and he would try to run from jail. And we're going down with him and just saying, okay, we all hang together, or most assuredly, we shall all hang separately. And actually just going in on, this is the one guy that is the best chance, probably DeSantis, and we're all going in behind him. The donors are rallying behind him. We are campaigning for him. Everyone who is not a super Trumpy guy is just going to bite the bullet, understand his voters will be mad, and do it anyway. Understand there may be a party split, but also understand that if they don't do this, it just gets worse. That they will go down with him in future elections and that the task of rebuilding the party gets harder and harder the longer his sticky little fingers are on it. Bill, any any wrap-up thoughts here before we move on? On the one hand, Megan has just given a wonderful argument in favor of Chris Christie running for the presidential nomination in 2012. And no doubt <laughs> that would have been a better course of action than the one he adopted. But Trump, I think, is in a unique position. And if the people who so fervently support him at the grassroots level were going to desert him, I think we would have seen some signs of that already. And I've searched high and low and I haven't seen them yet. It could still happen. Second point, I think Megan is presupposing a medical miracle, that is a spinal transplant uh, <laughs> for the Republican Party. And why would people who've been so gutless for so long suddenly develop a collective will? Which brings me to my third point. When we're talking about the Republican Party, or for that matter, the Democratic Party, are we engaged in kind of a metaphysical reification of an entity that doesn't exist? We used to have parties. Now what we have is legal shells within which individual entrepreneurs vie for advancement. We don't really have effective central nervous systems in parties anymore. I suppose under sufficiently dire circumstances, one could be developed, but where is it? And how can it develop under these circumstances? Fourth and final point, against the Trump forever scenario. I do not believe that a political party that has nominated a candidate three times in a row only to see him lose in the second and third round is going to renominate him a fourth time. I think if Trump can be kept out of the White House in 2024, the problem will gradually fix itself. And the Republican Party will then be faced with a choice between minority status and a real change of direction. Fingers crossed on that one. 
Could I just jump in with an alternative point of view in terms of what the Republican Party needs? Bill suggests it's spine. I think what could substitute for spine would be a super ambitious politician who sees 2024 as his or her opportunity. And one person who comes to mind who might be willing to do it, she doesn't have a whole lot else going for her right now in terms of political ambition, is Nikki Haley. And she was careful to sort of somewhat distance herself from Trump. And she is clearly one of the most ambitious uh, politicians out there. And if you could find somebody like a Nikki Haley, and if, you know, Mitch McConnell and others in the Republican Party who want to save the party and hope to have, you know, some influence in the future were to galvanize around her, I don't know what you could do about Rona McDaniel at the RNC, but you know, I could see if one person who was super ambitious and was willing to take on Donald Trump were able to clear the field, I could see him losing. It's entirely possible. I mean, I'm slightly skeptical that she would be able to rally, you know, all the disparate parts of the anti-Trump faction that remains of the GOP around her. But again, anything would be better. All right. uh, Student loans still in the news. They're going to be in the news for some time. Bill, you've written about the legality and the limits of President Biden's order here. I have a two-part question. Um, one, uh, is there a danger of overreach uh, and and the, the whole thing just being rejected by the court saying, nah, get out of here, we're not, we're not doing this? And two, the second question uh, here is, why might the change to the percentage of income allowed to be charged to people who take out student loans be a bigger issue overall than the actual uh, debt forgiveness in question? Two excellent questions, Sonny. I hope my answers measure up to them. Uh, First of all, there is a substantial question as to whether what the president has done uh, will be sustained by the courts. There's also, interestingly, a threshold question as to whether who, if anyone, is going to have standing to challenge it. Uh, And there's been a very interesting discussion in the law schools about the standing question. And it's not clear to me that the attorneys general or anyone else will be able to show the kind of concrete and specific harm that getting standing to sue the federal government requires. Stay tuned. It is a close question and no doubt will be fiercely argued. With regard to your second question, I have... (laughs) I have some history on this question because designing and getting past the original, what was then called the income contingent loan repayment system was one of my assignments in the Clinton administration. And I've continued to follow this entire dimension of federal loan policy with great interest. And I can tell you that rational federal student loan buyers would choose the new and much more generous system of income-related monthly payments because the system has been altered in a number of different ways to the advantage of borrowers. First, by the uh, 5% cap on the percentage of monthly income that can be charged by the federal government. Secondly, a change in the definition of income, because it's not all income, it is quote unquote discretionary income, which means income after accounting for basic expenses. And the Biden order has increased the amount of so-called basic expenditures to $30,000 a year, which means it's if you start off with a salary of $50,000 a year, which is roughly average for people graduating with BAs, the loan repayment base is 20000 not 50000 hmm. And the odds are considerable that uh, you will never repay your loans, even after 20 years, and that a substantial portion of it will be forgiven after that period. And third, for many borrowers with relatively low balances, the repayment period has been cut from 20 years to 10 years, which pretty much guarantees that they will not repay the principal. And after 10 years of paying interest, uh, the balance will be forgiven. The Penn Wharton study, 
making plausible behavioral assumptions suggests that the cost of that feature of the Biden plan alone could be half a trillion dollars over the next 10 years. If so, it would be the single most significant feature of the entire program. And all of the debate about $10,000 forgiveness would pale into insignificance. Yeah, I mean, that's an enormous amount of money. And just to clarify for folks, you know, when we're talking about basic expenditures, what does that encompass? I mean, I assume rent and others, but like, what, what is that actually taking into account? It's taking into account things like rent, home heating, food, basic transportation, etc. So all the things you need to live and to work. Mm -hmm. And the new definition is now 225% of the federal poverty level uh, will be excluded from the category of discretionary income. That works out to about $15 an hour, $30,000 a year if you're working full time. And when you consider the fact that the average starting salary, if you get out of community college, is about $33,000 a year, you'll be repaying your loan on a base of $3,000. For a college graduate, as I said, you'll be repaying on a base of about 20 on average. But in either case, it's a back-of-the-envelope calculation that you're not going to end up repaying your loan. It would take a long time. Linda, what do you think the best case outcome here in the the whole student loan situation is, because it's really complicated. I mean, the politics on this are very, very complicated, especially if the courts get involved. Well, I think that's right. And I'm sorry to hear Bill, whom I respect very much on these matters, suggest that it would be very difficult to find someone withstanding to be able to go into court on this. Um, I mean, my preferred outcome would be that this thing would be knocked down altogether. I think it's just a terrible idea. It's backward-looking instead of forward-looking. If we want to be investing in education, and I'm all for that, we ought to be investing forward. We ought to be encouraging, as I've said before on this show, more people to go into some of the trades. You know, one of the big problems, it seems, in all of this student debt is a lot of the for-profit trade schools were big offenders in basically giving training that was uh, worthless. Now, not all of them, but some of them. And so this doesn't deal with that. This doesn't in any way deal with the rising cost of higher education, which is frankly the biggest problem. I mean, the fact that you've had the cost of college tuition vastly exceeding the uh, inflation rate over the years It was possible, as we've discussed on the show before, for people in my generation, Bill's generation, to be able to afford to go to college by working and paying for it. You know, I had a little bit of loans. I think I had less than $1,000 in total in loans, but mostly I was able to pay by working and paying for tuition at a university, state university, that was reasonable. So my preferred outcome is that somehow this thing gets struck down and that the Biden administration comes back with a different plan. And frankly, you know, from everything we're reading behind the scenes of the various talks that went on, Biden himself was not terribly enthusiastic about this. He made a promise during the campaign. They hoped that was going to energize young voters. And of course, President Biden is not doing well with young voters now. But it's not clear to me that even those young voters that he hopes to appeal to are jumping up and down for joy with this debt forgiveness. So I just think it was a bad, bad policy and not necessarily good politics either. Damon, I I want to jump to you for a second. Because I agree with Linda 100% on just the policy point of it all. Um, but I, I, am, I am curious about the politics of it because it really does feel like Joe Biden has set a very delicate trap for the Republicans here in which they are being forced to come out against money for people. You never want to be the politician who says, no, no money for people. I don't want to give money to the people, right? Well, uh, you know, usually that is the way things go, but who are the people? Who exactly are we talking about here? And one of the underlying structural changes that has been going on in American politics over the last generation is that the Democratic Party is increasingly becoming the party of college graduates, and the Republicans are becoming the party of those who don't at least graduate from college. 
maybe some of them go or they go to to your programs or something. But in general, that is one of the major fissures separating the two parties in our moment. And I, as someone who very much has very hopeful feelings for the fate of the Democratic Party in the current political environment with the danger posed by the populist Republican Party, I'm worried that this will simply feed a narrative that what Democrats are doing here is channeling a kind of gift to its voters who, in the scheme of their entire earning potential throughout their lives, are going to actually do quite well and don't really need a boost to the tune of roughly uh, half a trillion dollars. That this is something, I mean, it's not all of them. Maybe other kinds of means testing could have been done. But in fact, this program seems to have gone somewhat in the other direction by including graduate programs, law degrees and things where their earning potential is going to be among the very highest in the society. And so the idea that, uh, I mean, no one likes to struggle to pay off student loans. And I agree there are all kinds of structural problems with higher education and incredible tuition inflation. But as any economist would tell you, setting up this kind of a program is is almost tailor-made to make those problems worse by convincing schools. Well, hey, we can charge anything we want. In the end, the people won't even have to pay this stuff off. It's actually the taxpayers are going to pay for it in the end. So there's no incentive to keep the cost down, to lower tuition. And similarly, the same kind of moral hazard problem with people who are deciding whether to go to school and which school to go to, and really how much people are going to be on the hook to repay these debts. And frankly, the way Bill, I think, very helpfully explains it in his column and here on the podcast implies that, well, moral hazard is actually built into the thing. It's encouraging it. You have all kinds of reasons to assume that if this stands court challenge, and of course, if Democrats remain in power to keep it from getting rescinded or something, we're looking at a future in which there's going to be a hell of a lot more debt forgiveness coming up. So what's the incentive to be prudent when it comes to deciding where to go and how much to spend? So in general, I, you know, the, the initial polls seem to be showing that people like this plan. That might be the case. I'm skeptical. Most people understand what's in it yet. And of course, we haven't had much time for Republicans to refine an effective political argument against it. So in general, I'm remain skittish. And as I said last time, quickly on the pod, I think this was bad on about eight levels, but none of them are the worst thing in the world. So in the end, not good, but I don't get super worked up about it. I just kind of scratch my head and wonder exactly what's going on in the Democratic Party when it comes to this felt need to placate certain factions within the coalition, especially the kind of Elizabeth Warren voter, highly educated college graduate who is carrying a bunch of debt for an English degree somewhere. I guess I'll stop there, but those are my general (laughs) thoughts on the matter at this point. Well, Megan, I want to ask you to uh, drill down a little bit on something Damon said here, because you wrote earlier this week that the problem with debt forgiveness is that in all likelihood, it's just going to make all of these problems worse. It's not going to do anything to you know keep down costs, et cetera, et cetera. But I'm skeptical. I mean, what could possibly go wrong by cutting checks to people and then doing nothing to change the behaviors of the institutions that have encouraged these people to rack up all the debt in the first place? I don't see how could that possibly backfire? Oh, yeah. How do I count the ways? I mean, for starters, there's just the fact that we're spending, what, half a trillion dollars, maybe a trillion dollars, who knows, on all of these changes. But I think that the incentives are obviously terrible. And I think that they are, in fact, this is a continuation of a cycle that we have been undergoing for quite some time, which is that, you know, the student loan program was originally actually established because of Sputnik. American legislators were afraid that we were falling behind the Russians and we needed more STEM education. And that was what it was originally for. Well, over time, it expands. But it's not actually a big deal for most people until really the 90s to 2000s. And that is because colleges realize, you know, the kind of theory behind student loans is sound. You allow students, look, you're going to make more money when you graduate. So let's move a little of that income forward so you can pay your tuition. Everyone's better off, right? You get to invest in yourself. You can pay it back. Well, the thing is, what colleges realize is, if you move that income forward, you can pay more. And so they start jacking up tuition. And also, by the way, 
doing a lot more price discrimination. And so when you now look at how the college process works for people who are not going to necessarily like a super elite school, there's a huge amount of like bidding wars for financial aid. The actual sticker price is very different depending on what kind of student you are. Not just do you help the school get its US News and World Report rankings up, but also are you a boy? Because fewer boys want to go to college. So there's a kind of implicit affirmative action for them at a lot of schools now because girls don't like to be in college by themselves. You know, so there's all these weird bidding wars that go on. So the published tuition price often bears very little resemblance to what students are paying. So we look at this and we say, oh my gosh, this is terrible. College tuition prices have gone up. Students are struggling. I know. Let's do income-based repayment because that'll make it easier for them. Well, it does make it easier. And what else does that do? It makes them more willing to borrow because they know there's going to be a cap. And in, in some cases, you know, Matt Brunig not someone who I usually agree with, but wrote a good post talking about the ways in which like law schools, for example, can gain this. They know that if you're going to go into public service, they might as well jack up tuition because you're not going to pay it anyway. It's all going to be forgiven after 10 years. And so the student doesn't care. And in fact, why don't I borrow some money for living expenses? Why don't I have a good time when I'm in law school? I'm not, you know, I'm capped at at whatever the 10%, 5%, whatever the number is that gets set. But we keep changing the incentives to make it easier to borrow money. And then the price of college keeps going up. And we keep doing the same thing, trying to get a different result. This is like trying to quit smoking with switching to unfiltered cigarettes. It's a terrible, terrible plan. And I think when you add in the forgiveness, the students going forward are going to get the now lower caps on income-based repayment. But they're going to look at people who graduated basically this year or earlier and say, hey, those people got the lower rates but they also got $10,000 worth of forgiveness. And hey, look, tuition's going up as schools move to capitalize on the easier borrowing. Don't I deserve forgiveness too? So I think the cost ultimately is going to be even higher than it now looks, both because this is actually going to contribute to tuition going up as it has in the past, but also because it's going to push further forgiveness in the future. I think it's just a terrible, terrible policy. The best you can say about it really is that it seems to be blatantly illegal I mean, there don't seem to be any lawyers outside of the administration who really think that this is actually even vaguely within the remit of the law that they're using to excuse this. And so if someone can find standing to sue, probably a court strikes it down and that's the end of it. Yeah. Always a nice best case scenario. Yeah. It's not great, right? I mean, it's basically, it's the administration getting some temporary electoral support. And then if this goes, say, all the way to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court quite rightly strikes it down because the law that they used was not intended for anything like this purpose, then the Biden administration is going to go back and say, see bad conservative SCOTUS instead of see bad B for passing a law that I knew damn well was not actually for kind of exploiting a law in a way that I knew damn well it was not intended to be used. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing here. It's not even pass a law. It's just like a decree. I, I I don't really know. All right, the Pennsylvania Senate race is heating up and getting kind of ugly after weeks of devastating meme warfare uh, by the Fetterman campaign. The Oz campaign has hit back, making fun of John Fetterman's stroke and then suggesting he was incapable of debating because of it. There are a couple of different angles here. One is that, look, there are certain things that are okay to mock, right? Like carpetbagging. Nobody likes a carpetbagger. We can all make fun of them. And there are certain things that are not okay to mock that should be off limits. For example, health concerns and having a stroke. Um... You know, it's funny that Dr. Oz is a New Jerseyan and Fetterman can get Snooky to say that she's waiting for him to come back to the shore. It is not funny that Fetterman's brain issues leave him unable to deal with crowded auditory settings. Like, these are very basic elements of comedy. And yet, I can't help but think, Linda, that the Oz campaign's attacks here are at least a little more important in terms of the job of actually being a senator. Like, if Fetterman really can't communicate with people, if he's having trouble in big, crowded settings, if he isn't on the top of his game mentally, does he actually have any business being in the Senate? Well, I think that's the reason that Oz is doing it. Look, Oz is right now running a bit behind in the race, and I think he desperately wants to move forward. Fetterman, interestingly, I think in some ways has benefited by being off the campaign trail. He is much to the left, and I think that he's not necessarily the best person to win that race, Obviously, he won the primary, but Pennsylvania is a purple state. 
it's a swing state. So I think that Oz is doing what he thinks he needs to do. And it's not as if at least Republicans are not used to candidates mocking uh, the disabled. Donald Trump certainly did it with the New York Times reporter who was disabled during the campaign. Everybody gasped and thought that was going to be the end of his campaign, as they did so many other times, and it turned out not to be. But you raise an important point in terms of Fetterman's ability to be able to communicate. He has been loath to actually be out there on the campaign trail, and I don't blame him. I mean, he is recovering from a major stroke. This was not one of those little minor strokes that, you know, you can go about your day and not necessarily even notice this was a major stroke and he is still unable to process words. He still has trouble getting his thoughts out. And I think his energy level is not where it would be. And that does raise questions about, well, okay, how good a representative is he going to be in the United States Senate if he's still having those problems? So Oz is going with what he has. You know, Oz himself is not a very appealing candidate. And therefore, I, it's not as if he can run a positive campaign. And so he's going negative and he's going at it in a crude, sort of disgusting way by mocking the severity of Mr. Fetterman's stroke. But on the other hand, he is planting in the minds of the voters, look, maybe this guy's not up to the job. Damon, you know, meme warfare, it's, it's a major part of politics today, right? At least in terms of shaping the narrative. Do you see any similarities or at least kind of similar type behavior between what's going on between Oz and Fetterman and what the White House did when it essentially just started saying to every Republican out there who opposed the student loan measure, oh, look at this PPP loan you took out. Look at this PPP loan that your business took out, you know? And also, I'm just curious, you're a Pennsylvania resident, right? I want to get your take on how this is all playing out out there. Well, To take those in, uh, I guess, reverse order, since the first one is a little more impressionistic just based on being a resident here in Pennsylvania, it has been very entertaining the way things have unfolded over the last couple of months since Fetterman and Oz won their primaries. The campaign has been sort of frozen because first, Fetterman was incapable of campaigning at all, and there was a kind of hush right after the primaries were over, and then it kind of got up and going, and it was entirely one-sided. Oz is really an inept candidate. You know, carpetbagging is a, a storied American tradition, and it always gets some traction when the other side hurls it at the carpetbagger, but usually the story goes that the carpetbagging is about someone who moves to a new location and then runs for office for whatever the declared reason is. I would be good here, and yes, I'm not from here, but I want to represent you now. And, you know, that can always be criticized, but in this case, it's not even clear Oz has even moved to Pennsylvania at all. He (laughs) appears to still live in New Jersey. He owns many homes, and Most of them are not in Pennsylvania. And it's never been clear why he's even running. He just decided at some point he wanted to be in politics. And here was an open Senate seat. and It was kind of near where he lived. So he decided to launch a campaign. So Fetterman's been coming at him with these meme wars, I guess, to transition to your second question. And it's been fun to watch because It's been all directed so far until quite recently with Fetterman against Oz mocking him for his mansion in New Jersey. And he says crudite instead of veggie plate. And so very kind of sort of light touch, slightly mean, but light touch populist zingers sort of being shot toward Oz. And Oz has been very inept in his attempt to respond to them until now when he's finally kind of stepped up to trying to best Fetterman at the meme wars. But it's about this very kind of grave issue of Fetterman's competency and his health. And in that respect, It has turned ugly, but I, you know, I have to say it's, first of all, not surprising that Oz would take this particular turn on this issue because one way he can try to uh, increase enthusiasm among Republican voters who aren't thrilled with him is to be a jerk, which is, you know, one of Trump's big transformations that he's effectuated in the Republican Party is kind of uh, animating the jerk vote, people who really aren't very nice and 
you know, sort of like being jerky to the other candidate, the other party. And so this is, I think, probably designed in part to get those voters to say, hey, Oz can fight too, like Trump. Yeah, give it to him. The end result, though, I think, is a very real issue. I mean, the very fact that we're even talking about the results of this stroke on Fetterman's ability to serve an office is a function of this attack this week. So it might not have been nice, but this is something that's been kind of going on in the background. First, Fetterman wasn't doing any public events for weeks and weeks. Then he said he would be back out in July. Then he didn't show up on the campaign trail to the very end of July. Then it turned out that when he does do an event, he never speaks for more than about 10 minutes, and it's sometimes halting. And yet there were not a lot of mainstream journalistic stories about this fact. And now we're talking about it because Oz has put it on the agenda with these kind of sleazy attacks and nasty attacks. So in the end, I do think that is a perfectly legitimate issue to raise. I think it does seem to be getting Democrats very animated. He does represent one possible uh, strategic future for the Democratic Party that the Republicans have every reason to be worried about, namely a guy who on policy is, as Linda said, a progressive and on the left, but whose manner of way of speaking, of dressing, of just carrying himself screams working class average guy. That combination of things could be very formidable. So I'm not surprised that the gloves have come off at this uh, relatively Megan, as a fellow Twitter addict, I'm addicted to Twitter. I see you on there probably more than either of us would want us to be on there. How much do you think that this is just localized to like a Twitter spat that all of the journalists who are on Twitter love and love to talk about? And how much is actually impacting the real world? Look, I think it's a problem. I thought about this and what everyone did decorously mention that like, if you were on the campaign trail, Joe Biden looked really frail. And he sometimes confused people's names or gave answers that didn't seem to make sense. And no one said anything because it was unkind. And I think what Oz has done is force us to talk about the fact that he may be cognitively fine inside, you know, past the speech problems. But nonetheless, the speech problems are real. The auditory processing problems are real. And that is something that voters should be considering. Now, does that mean that he's not going to win? No. We've had real cases of reportedly, I can't vouch for this personally, but like real cases of senators with what seemed to be pretty advanced dementia who just kept getting returned by voters and everyone kind of kept quiet about it. We probably shouldn't do that. I think that you don't have to make fun of people in that condition because it's not funny, but it probably shouldn't take kind of shock value to push that past our kind of niceness filters and ask, is this person capable of doing this job right now? And I think, unfortunately, maybe it does. You know, maybe the only way that we can talk about whether someone who has recently had a stroke should in fact be in office is for his opponent to say something really terrible so that we can talk about it by talking about his opponent. Now, it's tricky. I mean, Bill, I, I, I can't help but feel that this is one of these, like, just politics ain't beanbag sort of things, right? Like, politics is nasty. It can get ugly. And this is an important seat in an important race and odds are it was going to get ugly sooner rather than later. I mean, do you think that either of these sides can or should uh, unilaterally disarm in the race or should they even? Well, the arms race analogy, I think is a good one because once you're off and running (laughs) with this sort of politics, unless you can negotiate a mutual stand down, neither candidate can afford to move first and unilaterally disarm. It just doesn't work that way. And rationally speaking, it can't work that way. But let me move for just a minute from the uh, politics of the situation to the actual substance of what's at stake. People I know very well have been stroke victims. And one of the things that I've noticed is that if you took a snapshot of them two or three months out, you'd be led to the conclusion that they would never again be able to do many of the things that they used to. But the recovery continues. And so a reasonable voter in Pennsylvania would ask, 
not only whether John Fetterman is capable of serving now, but whether he's likely to be capable of serving in six months or nine months from now. Medically, I think that's the right question, and the snapshot approach is the wrong approach. And then a reasonable Pennsylvania voter might ask, well, based on what I've learned about John Fetterman over these many years when he's been in public life in Pennsylvania, based on what I've learned from his indefatigable travels, which have taken him, as far as I can tell, to just about everywhere in his state, given the fact that he knows the state very well, and the guy who's running against him certainly doesn't, and shows no signs of being a fast learner, all things considered, who is more likely to represent me more accurately, more faithfully, more knowledgeably? So it is not clear to me that the fitness to serve issue cuts in favor of Dr. Oz and in favor of John Fetterman, even if he is in an impaired state now and may suffer, we don't know, some longer lasting impairments. He certainly doesn't suffer from dementia. And as a, as a previous participant in this discussion pointed out, that hasn't always been a bar to elective office. I'm old enough to remember Strom Thurmond. <laughs> and there may be some current instances as well. I'm not recommending dementia as a qualification for public office, <laughs> but I am saying that stroke victims are not dementia victims and their trajectory is up. Uh, victims' uh, trajectory is down and it is perfectly reasonable to cast a vote for John Fetterman, even under these circumstances. I, I mean, I think that's a totally fair point. Look, it's a disease. He's trying to recover from it. Things could very well be better now. And, you know, if you don't want to vote for Dr. Oz, who could blame you? Because he's, you know, kind of a silly person. All right. Instead of highlights and lowlights, Linda asked if we might do some cultural stuff, since I am the Bulwark's resident movie nerd and the culture editor and all that. And I am happy to oblige. So let's try a new segment just for this week. What are you watching this weekend? We've got a long Labor Day weekend coming up, lots of time to fill. Linda, what are you watching? Well, I am watching a fabulous series on Apple Plus with one of my very favorite and I think one of the best living actors, Gary Oldman. It's called Slow Horses. It has a star studded cast. It's got Kristen Scott Thomas in it. It has uh, Jonathan Price in it and a young up and coming actor, Jack Loden. It's all about MI5 and Slow Horses is the name given to a bunch of MI5 washouts who instead of being separated from the service in England have been sent out to a place they called Slough House which apparently is named for an exurb of London uh, far out. And there they're supposed to not get into too much trouble and basically are just farmed out to do nothing. Well, they end up doing a great deal. It is a very fast-paced series. It opens with one of the best openings I've seen outside of a, in terms of a thriller, outside of a, a born movie with lots of action. And it's just really a good watch. I recommend it. It has one season that has been completed. Apparently, the second season is going to come out this year, and they've already signed up for a third and fourth. And Slow Horses comes from a series of books written by Mick Heron, a 2010 series uh, called The Slow House Series. I believe one of the producers on the show is Graham Yost, who also did Justified. Yes, uh, So right. if you like Justified, and I did like Justified, I strongly recommend checking out Slow Horses, which I have also enjoyed. It's a fun show on Apple TV+. Plus. People should check it out. Damon, you've been revisiting some classics, right? Well, a classic, and it's a little weird to pronounce something from only within the last decade a classic, but in this case, I do <laughs> think it fits. Sometime over this last summer, my son was kind of bored and asking, you know, what, what can I do on these evenings when I don't have anything to do? And I suggested he take a look at Mad Men. 
and he uh, began watching it and watched, uh, I think he's about five seasons in by now, and he's absolutely loved it. And we've spent a lot of time this summer talking about it, but it's been long enough since I've seen it that my wife and I started rewatching it ourselves, and it really really holds up in every way. I mean, everyone, when it was on, talked about all of the things that are great about it, the acting, directing, set design, but especially, it hits me now, the script writing, which is not so much about plot, because not a huge amount happens on the show, just about a series of ad agencies in New York City during the 1960s, but the writing relating to character, and especially viewing psychology, uh, kind of timeless human psychology, as well as a very American psyche, and especially the dimension of Americanism that has to do with the myth of getting a new life. Is it possible to live your life thinking that it's always possible to start over, to break free from one's past and begin again anew with, of course, as most people probably know or or have heard that's the kind of ongoing drama of the main character Don Draper in the show and his endless efforts to get a new life and how that plays into the theme of the show uh, about advertising and dreaming up new fantasy possibilities and trying to make them real in the world this opens up all kinds of cultural and psychological puzzles that the show explores with a great deal of uh, eloquence and depth. So it remains very good. And hopefully when we're even more than barely a decade out from it, uh, people will continue to recognize how good it is. Strong recommend on that one as well. Mad Men, great show. Uh, Megan, I I happen to do a show with your lesser half, Peter Suderman, here (laughs) at The Bulwark. Have you been enjoying the new Game of Thrones? Uh, What else are you watching? Uh, we have, of course, been enjoying the new Game of Thrones. I mean, I think it's good. I don't think it's as good as the original, in part because the source fair, material fair. is not as exciting as the original, right? The source material was a fully developed story. The source material for this is more like a weird kind of just history, like a kind of companion volume to Game of Thrones. And it's a bit thinner and therefore I think a little bit less kind of interesting also because the stakes of Game of Thrones were like, the world is ending. And the stakes of this are like, maybe this person will get to be queen instead of that person. (laughs) Somewhat, somewhat lower stakes. Also, we're going to see uh, 3000 Years of Longing this weekend, which I'm excited for, but can't tell you anything about. And of course, we're going to be looking at the new Lord of the Rings because we are huge nerds. So yeah, a lot going on in the McSuderman household, cinematically, televisionistically. What is the television word for cinema? Televisually? Televisually. Yeah. And I it's, I think it's, uh, you know, we just finished Better Call Saul and Ozark. I think Ozark stuck the landing. Surprisingly, I think Better Call Saul was a better series overall, but Ozark stuck their landing better. But, you know, it's been a pretty good year, televisually and cinematically for our household. Yeah. Uh, Bill, any Labor Day recommendations for us? Yeah. Two. First, a long-running and quite well-known French show called Le Bureau, you know, which is about the French Secret Service. It's wonderfully well done. I will not go on at length about it. I'm also watching a new show called The Last Days of Ptolemy Gray, starring Samuel L. Jackson. You know, one of my absolute all-time favorite actors, who is terrific as usual. But there's a revelatory young actress in the show as well. Her name is Dominique Fishback, and I'm ashamed to acknowledge that I hadn't heard of her previously, but she is fantastic. And I've learned by doing a little research after I started watching her that she is no flash in the pan. You know, she's been nominated for a number of acting awards over the past decade, has won a couple, and is someone whose name will become, I suspect, very well known over the next decade. Ptolemy Gray, I believe, is on Apple TV Plus. Is that right? That is correct, yes. Uh, and where is Le Bureau? Well, I thought it was on Netflix. Is it on Netflix? Okay, sure. No, 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 uh, no, 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 no. No, I thought it was on Netflix, and maybe it once was, but... I was forced to subscribe to Sundance now in order to be able to watch it. But 
unlike many of these forced investments, it's been worth the money so far. Okay, good stuff. There's so many different streaming options out there. This is a thing I go on about at length. People are tired of hearing me talk about it. Uh, My suggestion would be to check out the new Ron Howard movie, 13 Lives, uh, which is streaming on Prime Video now. Uh, It stars Viggo Mortensen and Colin Farrell. It's about the rescue of the Thai soccer team from the flooded cave a few years back. Imagine it's like Apollo 13, right? Except instead of in space, it's underground. Uh, and in, in, again, instead of space, it's drowning. It's just, it, there, there are lots of very terrifying moments in, involving being underground and underwater and claustrophobia kicking in, but it's very good. It's very good. It makes the Ron Howard promise of like, we're going to put everybody in a lot of danger, but don't worry, you know that this story turns out well, so everything's going to be okay. So check that out if you have a chance this weekend. That'll be it for today. Uh, thank you to Megan McArdle and the panel for joining me. Thank you to our listeners. Our producer is Katie Cooper. Our engineer and editor is Joe Armstrong. Uh, Mona will thankfully be back next week. You won't have to put it up with me again. Uh, Hope you guys have fun. 